You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabrieconference.com. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Sarah Chestnut. Sarah is one of the workers at the Southboro Labrie branch, and this lecture is entitled Becoming Less Fragile, Self-Control as Inner Dominion. And I want to start with a prayer of John Newton's, the slave trader turned abolitionist. And I think it's a prayer that um, can be our prayer as we explore this question of what it might look like to become less fragile, um, to develop deeper resilience emotionally, um, to grow in our inward dominion, I'll say. And this is his prayer. Would you pray with me? I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I would like to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I am not what I once was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen. Well, amazingly, you are here because you want to talk about (laughs) self-control and emotional resilience. So um, maybe like me, you're a bit of a glutton for the deep dive into the murky waters of the human heart. Uh, Our road map, okay, we we road tripped down here from from the Boston area. The road map for this workshop this morning is, uh, first, I want to take a few minutes to locate this discussion both personally and also culturally. And then um, this, this jives with what Dick was saying about our need for a renewed imagination. I want to furnish our imagination with scripture. I had a professor who used that metaphor, the furnishing of the imagination, and I found it very helpful. If you think about um, moving through your house at night when it's dark and you can't really see, you know where to go because you know the furnishings well. You don't crash into them. And so um, I want to ask us, what, what is currently furnishing our imagination? What are the ideas, the thoughts, the feelings uh, that we move around even unconsciously and, and just that perhaps we need uh, a refurnishing of our imagination? So to do that, we'll look at a potent metaphor for self-control from the book of Proverbs. We'll look at a healing of Jesus in Luke's Gospel. And then um, at the end, we'll look at Paul's letter to the Galatians and his description of the fruit of the Spirit, which ends with self-control. So to locate this personally, at Labrie, we have four to five meals a week that we call formal discussion meals. And our guests can raise any topic 
that they want to for, for corporate discussion. We're going to do this here, today at lunch and tomorrow at lunch, when we go over to the dining hall, we'll all get our meal and you'll join a table, uh, uh, it'll be a table for 10, and, and we want to try to, um, as best we can, have that kind of a discussion together. Uh, one of us will be at each table and um, we want to talk about what matters to you. And what I want you to know as we go into this conversation is that um, these questions matter to me. <laughs> these are my questions. If I were coming to a brief discussion meal, um, I would be asking how my earn to exercise dominion over our often chaotic inner world, and how might growing in self-control make us more emotionally resilient? These are my questions, and I expect to learn uh, with you as we go along today. This is the workshop, I would say, that God has me in right now. My growing edges. And if I'm frank with you, my uh, inner monologue over the last uh, several weeks and, and even months that I've thought about um, coming to spend this time with you, my inner monologue has, has looked something like this. Sarah, you're the last person who should be talking about self-control. Everything in your life feels chaotic, especially your feelings. And even if you've made some semblance of order in your life with that new little vegetable garden, and even if you've finally gotten in the habit of making your bed every day, you are a moody mess whose thoughts and feelings are out of control, and they ooze on to the people around you, and you spill them out on your family. It's just one step forward, two steps back. And on and on it can go. Um, I share this not to elicit your sympathy, necessarily, uh, but rather because I have come to believe that being truly human and being less fragmented and fragmenting has everything to do with what we do with our inner thoughts and feelings. How they either govern us or however slowly we come to govern them. I loved Dick's phrase at the end about inching toward glory. How are you inching toward glory, toward the governance of your inner world? I'm fairly confident everyone in this room has some version of this internal monologue. We call it various things, the voice of the critic, being one of them. Um, and you know how profoundly inhibiting that it can be to your own flourishing, to the health of your relationships, and indeed to your ability to exercise some degree of care and responsibility for the little corner of the world that you have been entrusted. To be agents of integration and wholeness rather than uh, agents of further fragmentation. I like the, the saying, um, 
I think it's Richard Rohr said this. I wouldn't uh, get on board with everything Richard Rohr has to say about everything, but I like this summary of this dynamic. He says, what is not transformed is transferred. And he's speaking especially about the pain that we've experienced in life. When it is not transformed, we transfer it onto those that we love the most. Um, And so I think this uh, applies to how we deal with our inner world. It's not transformed, it's transferred. I know for myself, when I'm stuck in what I sometimes think of as the mud pit of my own self-pity, shame, feelings of failure or inadequacy, um, folding the laundry and putting it away, or carrying the stack of books all the way up the stairs to the shelf rather than just putting them on the bottom step to be attended to later, um, feels impossible. And the things on the outside feel chaotic because in fact they are becoming more chaotic the more immobilized I am by my inner chaos. Literature on self-care and self-love abound, uh, but self-control gets less airtime than perhaps it should. In fact, if we take a cue from Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, love and self-control grow together along with patience and kindness and gentleness, all things that popular advice uh, are ready to exhort us to, extend to ourselves, and rightly so, be gentle with yourself. Be patient with yourself. Be kind to yourself. But I, for one, don't think I've ever heard someone say, just exercise some more self-control. And the reason for this, I think, is because all we would need is sort of a collective cataloging of failed New Year's resolutions to, to realize how limited and fraught um, our sheer willpower is. And I think we often confuse self-control with willpower. So that is a distinction that I want us to explore today. The Greek word for self-control derives from power, strength, dominion. Self-control is dominion within. Dominion, as I I hope will become clearer by the end of this lecture um, and discussion, dominion that proceeds out from within oneself, but not by oneself. Self-control has everything to do with self-love and self-care and self-help and dominion, um, but dominion, sorry, and dominion, uh, if it's going to be something more than sheer willpower, needs something, or as we will see, someone, more than the self. We do need Jesus Christ, our true exemplar, um, the one we would imitate, as Dick says, the one who knows the true self that we have in spite of ourselves. Self-control and self-love 
needs the Holy Spirit making the work of Christ real to us. Self-control is dominion eating out from within oneself, but not by oneself merely, but by the Holy Spirit. I need this. I think you probably need this. Our uh, broken and beautiful world needs this. Locating this culturally. Um, Families are made of individuals. And schools and churches and societies are made of individual persons. So the concern for what goes on inside us is personal and it is profoundly corporate. In the 2018 book, The Coddling of the American Mind, authors Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt seek to understand a confluence of trends and forces that amount to what they call the institutionalizing of emotional fragility. The institutionalizing of emotional fragility. What I might call a large-scale manifestation of a failure of inner dominion. They critique the promotion of a culture of safety on university campuses around the country. Um, They use the term safetyism, which uh, involves an overestimating of danger, a fetishizing of safety, and not accepting any risks. They address what they call the three great untruths, being reinforced and taught implicitly and at times explicitly. Fragility, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Emotional reasoning, always trust your feelings. We hear this um, on a popular level, follow your heart. Um, And an us versus them schema for how we think about the world. Life is a battle between good people and bad people. And they uh, describe the way that this kind of thinking has led to acute moments of intimidation and violence and um, what I think are rightly described as modern-day witch hunts on campuses um, and the overall decline in learning and preparation for adulthood in um, the the generation born after 1995. Um, They call this the iGen, those who grew up with the internet in their pocket. Um, Maybe you've seen t-shirts or mugs that uh, uh, declare, I am adulting today. (laughs) Um, And they're funny because they're true, right? And I, generationally, I am, I was born in 1980, so I'm right on the Gen X millennial border. And I just want to say, uh, the dynamics that they describe that are unique to iGen are, are significant because there is um, a profound change that is happening to us because of having the internet in our pocket. Joshua, my husband, is giving a workshop on that right now, if you want to talk more with him at some point about that. Um, but I think the challenge um, to adult <laughs> is, is all of our challenges. The challenge to grow and mature um, belongs to everyone in every generation, to grow in that inner dominion we're talking about. 
So for the purposes of this workshop, I'm interested in these first two untruths, fragility and emotional reasoning. And also a chapter in their book dedicated to understanding the alarming statistics that reveal a significant rise in rates of depression and anxiety in adolescents and emerging adults, especially in girls and young women. One of the things that they note is that colleges are not the primary cause of the wave of mental illness among students. Rather, the students seeking help were part, are part of a much larger national wave of adolescence, anxiety, and depression unlike anything seen in modern times. They go on, colleges are struggling to cope with the rapidly rising numbers of students who are suffering from mental illness, primarily mood disorders. The new culture of safetyism can be understood in part as an effort by some students, faculty, and administrators to remake the campus in response to this new trend. And they say, our basic message in this book is that students are anti-fragile, not fragile. And I'll offer you their three words, um, fragile, resilience, and anti-fragile for, for us, for our discussion. They say, uh, that which is fragile is like a vase. You break it and it drops. That which is resilient is like a rubber ball. You drop it and it bounces. That which is anti-fragile is like the human immune system. It needs exposure to pathogens to function as it's meant to function. And they say that is what humans are like. We're not fragile or particularly resilient, but we are anti-fragile. So the primary tool that Lukianoff and Haidt promote to counter or correct these untruths that reinforce and promote mental unhealth is cognitive behavioral therapy, which teaches, as they note, intellectual habits that are good for everyone. Learning to see the connections between how we feel and how or what we are thinking, and the suggestion that we critically engage our feelings, I think is right on. And I think that we can say yes to the tools of cognitive behavioral therapy. And the merit of it is that it gives you awareness and language for common cognitive distortions. And I take comfort in that because they're common, which means <laughs> we all have them. Um, and, and cognitive behavioral therapy can help you realize connections between your thinking and your feeling and your actions in the world. So the goal of cognitive behavioral therapy is to notice your thoughts and question them, ask questions of them, critically engage them. Um, and, and hopefully to see your feelings, don't like how you feel, um, to start to change your patterns of thinking to change how you feel. Um, so for the purposes of our discussion, I want to share here five of these common cognitive distortions. Um, and just so you know, like, I, I, I'm not setting this up as a, they say this, but no, what we really need is this. 
I think these are really helpful tools, um, but they are not tools that give us the meaning that we really crave in life and in, in the process of our own transformation. So I am saying yes and to this. Um, but here are five of many common cognitive distortions. Um, I chose these because I see them in myself. I see them in my nine-year-old son and in my four-year-old daughter. Um, I see them in people that I talk with every day at Labrie. And we can, we can talk about more later. You can easily find a list um, on your own if you want to, to understand these further. So the purpose of considering these is to give ourselves tools to critically engage our feelings and to realize that the more predominant these distortions are and the less equipped we are to deal with them, the more emotionally fragile we think we are and maybe are exhibiting that. The less inner dominion we have. So these are a bit of a diagnostic. Um, I do want you to know I'm not a psychologist or a therapist. I'm a Libri worker, <laughs> which uh, we would all tell you means we are, we are generalists. Um, and so I, I don't by any means want to oversimplify the complexities of mental health. And if, if there are people who are um, trained or practicing in psychology, I would welcome your engagement with, with these ideas uh, later in our discussion. Um, so, do you see these things in yourself? Mind reading. You assume that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts. Oh, he just thinks I'm a loser. Or, oh, they'll think I'm stupid. Um, do you notice fortune telling in yourself? You predict the future negatively. Things will get worse. Or there's danger ahead. Oh, I'll fail that exam. I won't get this job. Um, my daughter uh, often goes from, uh, I'm sorry, you disobeyed in this way, you're not going to have dessert tonight, to, I'll never have dessert again. <laughs> Do you catastrophize? You believe that what has happened or what will happen will be so awful and unbearable that you won't be able to stand it. It would be utterly terrible if I failed. My son recently had a little rash around his mouth, so I called the doctor to just run it by her, and he was in pieces. He was convinced that tragedy was coming. <laughs> he had a little reaction to eating strawberries, okay? But to him, there was sure and sudden death in his future. <laughs> Labeling. You assign global negative traits to yourself and others. I'm undesirable, or he is a rotten person. I see this in myself when I move from, oh, I did this, to an I am this way of thinking. I forgot to send my kid to school with his gym clothes again. I'm a bad mom. Do you notice yourself discounting positives? You claim that the positive things you or others do are trivial. Well, that's just what wives are supposed to do, so it doesn't count when she's nice to me. Or, well, those successes were easy, so they don't really matter. 
Um, I write poems, and I've had a handful published, mostly in the journal of my graduate school alma mater. So I say, well, Crux published my poems because they know me. Discounting the positives there. Okay, so I see these things in myself. Maybe you see yourself thinking in these ways at times. So, then what? Well, I think for starters, we can be encouraged because realizing and, and becoming aware of compulsive thought patterns uh, means we're not totally ruled by them. We're conscious. <laughs> we're present in our lives and to ourselves. But where do we get what to think instead of our distorted thoughts? Um, and this is where I want to offer a very big and essential and to this recommendation and, and use of the tools of cognitive behavioral therapy. <clears throat> we must consider what resources we have beyond ourselves by which we can gain a different perspective and think different thoughts and maybe even begin to feel differently. Our true hope for growing in self-control and emotional resilience is not in how well we master and employ a psychotherapy technique. For this alone will not supply the meaning to our lives um, and the hard work of personal transformation that we both crave and need, and I think we can have. Our true hope is in the work of the Holy Spirit, growing us in our inmost being, which is a creative and a recreative work that we get to participate in the work of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So if I can offer a, a bit of a summary, well, what to do next list. You don't like how you're feeling? Things are feeling chaotic on the inside? Um, check the facts. Are you just plain tired? Um, and you probably are. Is your mind racing with some of these distortions? Are you feeling vulnerable and just on the defensive? Okay. Consider the possibility that you're not the greatest authority on yourself. This has been the most helpful thing to me, to stop the, I did this, so I am this, jump. <laughs> you know what? Maybe I don't get to make that call <laughs> about myself. Consider that you might not be the greatest authority on yourself. And ask, what if God's take on me is more true than my take on me? Sorry, keep going. And furnish your imagination with the language, the imagery, the metaphors of scripture. That last question, um, what if God's take on me 
is, is more true than my take on me is critical. And it begs us to become better acquainted with God's take on us and our situation. It is scripture that will furnish our imagination with uh, what we need to become more integrated people. So, one such image from Proverbs 25:28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. The first thing to be said about this predicament of being a person without self-control, being a person who is like a city broken into and left without walls, is that this describes every single one of us. No one is born with self-control. Not baby boomers, not Gen Xers, not millennials, not iGen. Because of the fall, we have inherited a city with broken down walls. And in fact, we are a city with broken down walls. I am a city with broken down walls, and so are you. Which is to say, we are vulnerable to attack. And the attack comes from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. And so we have this lifelong creative work of growth and maturity in gaining and regaining dominion. And it looks like repairing the breaches in the city wall that make us vulnerable to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. No longer are we the confident lord and master of our own well-fortified city. No, we are fearful defenders of a ruin. We are vulnerable. So I would ask this. How often is our defensiveness, our reactivity, our hiding our moodiness or emotional fragility, the result of feeling vulnerable. And I think this proverb invites us to ask, what are the breaches in my protective wall of self-control, and what can be done about them? What are the patterns, the defaults, the pitfalls, the common cognitive distortions that are my weak spots? The things that make me vulnerable to the world, the flesh, and the devil. There are many ways to gain this kind of self-knowledge. Many ways to acquire language for it. We've already looked at cognitive behavioral therapy as one way to gain some awareness and language. Um, Other ways to go from your thoughts uh, to thinking about why these thoughts uh, include personality inventories, um, the Enneagram can be helpful, 
looking at ways that we are constantly rehearsing the sacred secular divide that Dick talked about this morning in our own lives. Well, this counts, but this doesn't. Uh, how, how are we becoming aware of those kinds of breaches in our wall of self-control? Some possible breaches that I thought of as I have considered my own lack of self-control, my own vulnerabilities. Listed them for you here. You have these on your handout as well. I have categorized them in these, using these terms that I think get at um, power gone wrong. If dominion is power rightly exercised, the kind of power that humans can't avoid having. We have power. How are we using it? Are we using it for domination? Or are we abdicating our power? Or is it, is it power rightly used? Here are ways that I think um, self-dominion, ways that they go wrong. So I think of self-domination as teeth gritting, bootstrap yanking attempts to get myself to do what I want to do, to behave the way I think I should behave, Um, willpower. And I think of abdication as the sort of inner throwing my hands up, giving up or giving in, uh, slipping into sort of victim or fated ways of thinking, putting on the metaphorical sweatpants in life. So, on the one hand, I see in myself, maybe you see this in you, dismissive, dismissive thoughts. Oh, Sarah, you don't deserve this. What makes you so special? And I understate my needs and my desires. On the flip side, permissive thoughts. Oh, you deserve this. You've earned this. Where I overstate my needs and desires. And we probably do a lot of pendulum swinging, right? Um, I see an overestimation of myself. Oh, well, I would never fill in the blank. Um, I, I love Peter. St. Peter is like, he is my favorite for this because there is so much certainty that he will, he will do what he says he'll do, that he will go uh, with Christ to death. And he surprises himself. He does the very thing that he says he would never do. Um, So we see in Peter an overestimation of himself. On the other hand, um, perhaps an underestimation of the world, the flesh, and the devil. What does it really matter anyway? That's not really a big deal. Whatever it might be. And the way this plays out in my life is uh, when domina- self-domination is, is at play, there's a lot of frenzied activity. And when abdication is happening, there's a stubborn passivity that's going on inside of me. So becoming aware of these kinds of breaches in self-control can help us to notice when we're vulnerable and on the defensive, And I think this proverb prompts us to cry out, is there a builder in town? And here is the good news. 
this lifelong reconstruction project of self-control, of the restoration of inner dominion, is exactly the project that Christ associates himself with when he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue. I'm going, I'm going to read this, and I'm also going to read a long section from the Gospel of Luke. And I'm going to take a moment to pray for us, because I realize that uh, the more steeped you have been in Scripture and in um, church life, the more you can think you know what it says before you really hear it. That is also a breach, perhaps, in our own wall. Um, So I'm going to pray that for myself and pray that for all of you, too. God, we do ask that uh, you would help us to hear familiar things in fresh ways and to help us hear things that we haven't heard before uh, with humility and awe. Amen. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, For the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I can't help but think of that often quoted phrase of Francis Schaeffer that Dick also mentioned, we are glorious ruins. We are a city whose walls are broken down, but Christ has come proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He has come to make it possible for us to rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Want to look now at one encounter between Jesus and a city whose walls were broken down, a city that had been ruined perhaps for generations. A glorious ruin. You just need to listen to this one. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, 
There met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Here is a picture of a devastated city under enemy occupation. Here is a picture of utter lack of dominion from the inside out. The man's state has led him to isolation, to dwelling among the dead rather than with the living. Because of his occupied state, it's difficult at first to discern the real man from his occupier. Indeed, the man identifies himself with his occupier. I am legion, he says. External forces and efforts, chains and shackles, we might think of willpower, sheer efforts of willpower, could not restore dominion to this man or even contain him. The inner chaos was driving his relationship to the outer world, and it was destructive and it was dangerous to those around him. Here we have a picture of a self out of control and its bondage. I wonder if this is a picture of what it means when, um, I know Tim Keller says this, and I think he's quoting C.S. Lewis. Hell is any identity we forge for ourselves other than the identity we have in Christ, and it's hell. 
the man freed of the demons sits at Jesus' feet. If you let Jesus be your master, this is the restoration of Christ's lordship over the whole of our life, you will become the master of yourself again. Here we have a picture of how dominion is really at the heart of human identity and how a failure of dominion strikes at the heart of human identity. And Jesus gives this man the city of his identity back to him. Jesus, who proclaims freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And there the man is, clothed and in his right mind. Life apart from Christ is a breach in the wall in its own right. It's the reason that we need a wall in the first place. In Christ we have the gift of our identity back and the makings of the restoration of our dominion. Christ drives out the occupier, gives us the city back, and empowers us to rebuild the ancient ruins. The relationship between the work of Christ and what the work of Christ calls and equips the recipient of his work to do is significant. So hear those words from Isaiah again. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me, Jesus, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, Jesus, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. They, the poor, the freed, the released, will be called oaks of righteousness. They, the poor, the freed, the released, will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They, the poor, the freed, the released, will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. This is about a restoration of identity and dominion. Dominion proceeding outward from within oneself, but not by oneself. And this leads finally to Paul's letter to the Galatians and to a consideration of the difference between the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh, which is the difference, I think, between willpower and self-control. I had a New Testament professor um, who said, when Paul was writing to the Galatians, he was P.O.'d. <laughs> so, uh, of all of Paul's epistles, he is the most P.O.'d when he's writing to the Galatians. Um, and this is why. This is what he says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different 
gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Just as the first thing we need to realize about the proverb is that it describes all of us apart from Christ, so too do these words of Paul apply to us. Like the church in Galatia, we can all too easily slip into religious life that has nothing to do with life in and by the Spirit. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He says, It is perfectly possible to get smaller things under control by getting larger things out of control. We are vulnerable to making the gospel into a religion, a dead one. And Paul is adamant. The only gospel is the one authentic to Christ. Anything other than the gospel of Christ is a curse, is some version of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The gospel frees us to seek only the approval from God versus man or ourselves. Self-control is only truly possible when we are focusing on something bigger than ourselves, someone bigger than ourselves the person of Jesus. So a red flag that we are making something into a false gospel and a curse is that we are preoccupied with the approval of others or are internally defending ourselves to them. Or perhaps we're internally defending ourselves even to God. Becoming rebuilders of ancient ruins, repairers of the breach in the wall of self-control, is about remaining authentic to the only gospel there is, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Christ to set free the captives, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes and the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It's the spirit of the Lord Christ gives to those that he sets free. And so Paul is rightly adamant that we walk by the spirit as our only true defense against the desires of the flesh, as the only real way to become repairers of the breach. 
In Galatians 5, Paul writes about this fight between the flesh and the spirit. He says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other and keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, to be very clear, the flesh is not to be confused with the bodily, but rather any way that we make a way for ourselves apart from Christ. Paul's list of the works of the flesh include sensual and body-based excesses, sexual immorality, sensuality, fits of anger, drunkenness, orgies, but even more so, heart and mind-based excesses, enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, and he concludes with idolatry, which sums up the works of the flesh comprehensively. Anytime we look for salvation, that ultimate approval, that sense of, I am okay, from anything or anyone other than God. The flesh is our bent to be the center of the universe, our bent to be the ultimate authority on ourselves. So a sign that the flesh is propping up an idol in us, we catch ourselves saying or thinking, when this, then, I'll be happy. When my kids behave impeccably in church, then I'll know I'm a good mom. When I get married, then I'll know that I'm lovable. When people make that mm, amen, yes sound when I'm praying, then I'll know that I'm a really good Christian. The flesh tries to make something other than Christ our righteousness. Our successes, our relationships, our safety, our knowledge, our beauty, our comfort, and the list could go on for a very long time. And instead of being a gift and a joy, these good things morph into cruel tyrants. So what does the restoration of dominion in the inner person look like? What does uh, emotional resilience or being anti-fragile look like? I think it looks like a fight between the spirit and the flesh. And perhaps this is as good a definition of self-control or inner dominion uh, that we'll get that really distinguishes it from willpower. Self-control is the ability to stay in the fight between the flesh and the spirit knowing that we are securely on the side of the spirit. Self-control is the ability to not default to either self-domination, willpower, bootstrap yanking, or to apathy, abdicating the real power that we do have, 
both of which are flesh responses, coping mechanisms. Self-control is the ability to say to yourself, and I feel a little sheepish sharing these, these words, but this is what kept coming to me. I hope it's memorable, even if it's a little cheesy. Self-control is the ability to say, not buck up, not give up, but team up. Team up with the person of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So I think I need to make this a little more concrete for you. So, one way that I um, see this in myself. I can dip more regularly than I'd like to admit into pretty deep pits of melancholy. And sometimes I can pinpoint what triggers this, and sometimes I can't. But my darkened mood can quickly grow into a cloud, and it casts its shadow over our home. Um, But I don't want our home to be a sad and grouchy home. And so I um, add fear-mongering threats to myself, like, you better snap out of it, or you're really going to go over the edge here. And it'll be evident to everybody that something really, really is wrong with you. Um, And I can uh, say things to myself like, well, see, you'll never change. Um, And I have buck up and give up shouting simultaneously. All the while, the cloud of melancholy grows, which pushes others away. And there I am, dwelling among the tombs, barely closed, not fully in my right mind. Something my close girlfriends and I talk about um, is an idea that I, my dad's a furniture maker, and I grew up in the, the home decorating and um, furniture world. Uh, went to many craft sales with my parents and have seen all sorts of um, <laughs> pretty kitschy versions of, of this idea that mom sets the tone in the home. You've probably seen, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? <laughs> So my friends and I talk about this, um, which can be a lot of pressure as a mom to like be happy, or everybody scrambling around trying to make sure mom's happy, right? So I can experience this statement, mom sets the tone, um, either in the flesh or in the spirit, depending on the day. In the flesh, I use this phrase, Um, as further ammunition against myself when I know that I'm tainting the atmosphere of our home with a dark mood. In the spirit, I can hear this invitation to exercise the God-given dominion over my inner life and recognize that how I deal with myself does affect how I deal with everything around me. Here's the thing, and this is crucial. I cannot gain self-control by myself. 
I try to regularly, but that's just an attempt at stoic willpower that does not last. Might get me a little ways, but not very far. And it entrenches me more deeply in the flesh. The only way I can gain real self-control is by wanting something more than self-control or by wanting something more than a happy home, which is uh, what is becoming this mean God that I can't appease when I'm not exhibiting the happiness and thereby setting a happy tone that I think I should. Um, What I need to want more is Jesus. And so one thing that I've begun to do is to turn this mom sets the tone idea into a prayer. Jesus, you set the tone of this home. Self-control is the ability to say neither buck up nor just give up, but rather team up. And by saying team up, we remind ourselves and we let ourselves be reminded that the restoration of God-given dominion happens only through our submission to Christ as Lord over all creation, Lord over glorious ruins, Lord of renovations and restorations. Until the return of Christ and the making of all things new, we will always be a mixed bag. So what we might look for in a Christ-balanced life is the spirit outweighing the flesh more and more often, more and more decisively um, as we inch toward glory. And I think Newton's prayer that we began with really gets at this. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I would like to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I am not what I once was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So I will end there and look at what time we have. We've got, I think we could take about 20 minutes for conversation, um, discussion, questions here, and then we'll head over to the dining hall for lunch, and I'm very happy to keep talking during lunch about any of these ideas and others that you have about the challenge of inner dominion. Yes, sir. Really impressed by the way you handled the uh, the, the story of Jesus and the de- demon possessed man, and I I think you referred to this, but I'm just as I was thinking about broken city walls and sorry. Okay. The end of the story that we had for Luke eight. 
says in verse 38, the man who had the demons begged to go with Jesus. He gave much up to do. His restoration return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And then Luke repeats that. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Thank you for pointing us to the rest of the story. You jump from there into Galatians, and I just had to get that thing in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll just say, uh, my my colleagues at Labrina, we the temptation is always to try to say everything, right? And uh, and and I often say we have to leave things out on purpose. <laughs> Take the point. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. This is a question. Uh, as for formulating, um, I always, okay, so my understanding of self-control is that of one that rests on two things. One, a primarily healthy physical body that is not overcome by chronic pain, and two, a really mentally capable metacognitive awareness. Right? Which means that it's really to step outside of oneself and to look at what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And because I've always been a possessor of it you know, very recent year, I've always thought, oh, I'm able to exercise self-control very easily. Until about a year ago, I got hit by a car and since I struggled with chronic pain and I've been recovering for very long. And I've become I've come to realise that in my Christian walk I do not have a language for or I don't have any theological grounding for character that is overridden by my body saying I have zero capacity for any self-control because I'm in so much pain. I cannot be kind to you because I cannot pay attention to you. Uh, and I don't know of any theological reading or text that deal with this. I don't know of anything in the Bible that deals with this. So I'd be interested in hearing if you have any recommendations. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for sharing, and this question too. Uh, I would like to think about it, and let's connect. <laughs> and I'd love to talk with some of my yeah, fellow workers. Um, I think one thing I'll just say is that um, I think you're right. We, we stake a lot on our own wellness. And it's until we are not well, <laughs> that we realize how much of our identity we've put not in our, our worth and our value before God as a child of Christ, but in our, our oneness. Um, and so you're spot on that that's a problem. Um, 
the name of a theologian who was also a, a mental health nurse for many years. It's escaping my mind right now, but I know my husband will know. So I'll check with him. He and he um, he does a lot, both looking at um, where do we understand, yeah, how do we understand our identity. Um, both when we're dealing with mental health issues, and uh, he worked for a long time with dementia patients. So, like as as we literally lose an awareness of who we are, what does that mean for who we are to God? We locate who we are belongs to God, not to us even. So, but I'll please find me. We'll try to connect again in the next day. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, okay, I wanted to just push back a little bit on some of this because I'm, it's just, I'm struggling with it about the conflict of American law. I am a university professor. Yeah. I work in this context. Yeah. And I just feel, you know, the, the beautiful verses from Isaiah that are so full of compassion and empathy. And I feel like this approach, I'm not talking about, I'm totally. I see all the distortions in myself, <laughs> you know, this is helpful, but this part, you know, fragility and all that, um, I feel like it's lack of empathy and it's kind of um, conflating uh, that idea of, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of kind of a paraphrase of Jordan Peterson or something like that, where in the university context, I see students who are dealing with trauma or maybe like physical illness or, you know, uh, Oftentimes, my students of color are teaching the Deep South with, you know, African American students who are on a daily basis dealing with racial issues. Um, women that have been raped, student, you know, student last semester whose father tried to commit suicide, and so giving like a trigger warning, you know, I feel is being empathetic because to tell, you know, I'm, I'm disturbed by the kind of maybe you need to expose yourself to to become to become more resilient, but I, I'm not going to tell that to someone who's been raped or traumatized, you know, and if I'm going to show a film that deals with the do you see what I mean? I feel like, now on the other hand, the students that I see with the most issues of fragility tend to be the very entitled students who feel like, how dare you tell me something about slavery, or how dare you tell me something that's going to make me feel uncomfortable. So I guess what I'm saying, can't really make it distinction with this as in being empathetic, but also understanding there are some people who we really need for us to um, maybe need not to be exposed mm-hmm. and just kind of, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, you get what I'm saying, I do, it kind yeah. of, <laughs> I Thank had a you. lot of dealing yeah. with this last semester, the worst I've ever seen. Yeah. And by the way, the statistics show that Christian colleges have a much higher rate of depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so that's a question, much more than the secular university. Mm-hmm. To use the word we shouldn't use right this morning. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I'm even wondering about the church, what about the home? Yeah. You know? So, yeah. Okay. Well, and how, and how valid it is. Well, the statistic I have is from my own university comparing with local and then looking at our scale. So you're not talking about a, na- a national. I am from the Coalition of Christian Colleges and Universities and different statistics, so mm-hmm. um, you can look them up. Huh. It's just, I mean, we're, there's a lot, we know there's a lot of sexual abuse within the church. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure to be silent about these things. Yeah. 
Um, and so that's why I think like a book like this to me is not incredibly helpful in that with some of that. Have you had a chance to read it? No, I haven't. So okay. So not, I'm just going on your head. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you like a one. I like everything in this, but that part. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Because yeah. I and and I think you're right, and I don't think that these authors would disagree with you at all. And and they uh, they give a book length yeah. nuance yeah, exactly of these of these, uh, of these of these issues. I'm triggered. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and so we're kind of the racism is not germane only to the South because I'm from Memphis and. I am too. And I'm from California and not Massachusetts. It's all over. I'm talking, I live uh, just a couple miles from the guy that's a Make America White Again sign. When I sit on the side of the road with my students, people driving by yelling the N word at them, I'm not going to say, you need to expose yourself to this. Right. No. No. And I agree with you. And I think um, one of the things that's helpful about this book is it. Um, it began as an article for the Atlantic, um, in which they, they particularly critiqued um, the just the hyper sensitivity toward you have to provide trigger warnings, the removal of a lot of classic texts from curriculum because it was having too much of a an emotionally disturbing effect on so many students. But uh, they got so such a huge reaction to the article, it prompted the writing of the whole book. And as they delved more deeply into these questions, um, they, they corrected some of their own initial um, uh, emphases, maybe I'll say. So I think the book is very much worth uh, looking at. Um, might even be worth reading. Read a whole book on this. Um, but and I, I just want to say um, at Labrie too, um, we regularly uh, have guests who have very complicated. Well, hello, we're all very complicated. We are dealing with with generational uh, devastation, right? Um, and so I, I don't want to oversimplify um, mental health. Um, in any in any way, but I so thank you, and I'll I'll leave it at that. But if others want to add to that or bring up other things, yes, sir. Somebody back here knew the name of the theologian that you were trying to remember. Uh, yeah, help me out. It, it was it was Henri Nouwen. No, but but Henri Nouwen is a wonderful writer. Yes. Yeah, I, I think yeah. The, the person that is always my go-to about pain, about suffering, is Johnny Ayers' Tata. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard her, I think it was on the podcast, mm-hmm. focus on the family, right before she had the second bout with breast cancer, the current, and she was talking about <coughs> etiology of pain. And that woman, as far as I'm concerned, I have a heart connection with her, and I'm like, she's got it. So, just... Just encouraging mm-hmm. Johnny Ayers probably mm-hmm. Yeah. She would have had what do they call it? Yeah, she lived it. Yeah, she's still living. Yeah. Fifty years. Yeah, I think there is a way in which uh, we we need a more robust theology of the fall. 
Yeah, but like there is nothing that is untouched by the brokenness and things gone wrong by sin, and and so and I think that that does need to uh, temper our expectations for our own lives too. Um, but yeah, to know that Christ is the one who enters. <laughs> directly into that reality, I think, is critical and a comfort. Yeah. I just finished a book that was Doug's Elizabeth Elliot compiled together, and the title of the book is Suffering is Never for Nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think even Johnny Dark's daughter was open to share that she struggled mm-hmm. with depression herself. Mm-hmm. So I think we're not immune to suffering and pain and mental health, but it's what do we do with it? How do we respond? Yeah. Thank you. John Swinton. I kept thinking Jonathan Swift. I'm like, no. <laughs> Swinton. Thank you. Yeah, John Swinton. S W I N T O N. Yeah. And Edith Schaefer wrote a book called Affliction as well. Um, and I, uh, I don't know if I'll get my facts straight, she wrote it, a, a book on suffering, and it was right after it was published that Frances Schaefer was diagnosed with cancer as well. So her own story was one of thinking through things, and then there was the, the living through them that was working in tandem. Maybe, is there one more? And then, yes, in the way back. Yes. Um, <laughs> thank you for being here. Uh, so, I'm kind of connecting some of this the first thing that we heard in um, Kenya's phrase that you said, the only way to gain self-control is by wanting to more in self-control. And, like, in the previous lecture, I remember saying, we can't anyone desires happens indirectly. Um, and I was just wondering, do you have, if we can't teach ourselves desires, and it happens indirectly, what are some ways, I don't know, it's like, is there anything we can do? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, you all be thinking about how you'd answer that question too, because I'd be curious to hear from you. Um, I I think one of the ways that I see it play out at Labrie um, is through good bread. Um, like the the exposure to goodness, and um, you know, so real bread <laughs> that was made that day, hot from the oven. Um, you know, which isn't to say, like, if you don't eat real bread, then you're not doing a good job. You know, like, don't swing. <laughs> don't, do, don't do a big swing. But I think it's one of those things that is more caught than taught, if, if that makes sense. So um, there is something, and I think Dick was getting at this a bit with talking about, like, the narratives of other people's lives can shape our own narratives, too, to to hear the stories of others, to enter into them, um, to partake of, of what is truly good 
in life, that shapes an appetite in us. Um, and I think uh, too often we, we have a poor appetite um, for what is truly good. And so I think that's where um, the gifts of the arts and creativity, um, like genuinely wholesome things, <laughs> using these words like they're so freighted, but I hope you know what I mean by that, like real things. Um, there is a book by Robert Farrar Capon called The Supper of the Lamb that I would recommend. It's, um, it's a theology of cooking. He wrote this in, I think, the late 1970s, before like the food blog craze and all of that. But it's a theology of cooking. It's a theology of eating. It's really an anthropology. <laughs> what does it mean to be human? Um, it means to be priests and lovers in this world. And, um, yeah, like he makes a case for paying attention and to really enjoying um, good things. And he, he says one real thing is closer to God than all the diagrams in the world. And, you know, this, when diagrams were the contender for what is real, and now what's contender, contending for what is real is virtual reality, you know. So, uh, but one real thing is closer to God. Robert Farrar Capon, C-A-P-O-N. All right, well, thank you so much, and uh, let's make our way to lunch and keep talking. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com. All right. Maybe you can find some, some things of quality in that 45 minutes of talking. I'm sweating. Who knew?